This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of uh, Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, interviewing Dr. Oliver Zivanovic um, from the Memorial Sloan Kettering in the Department of, uh, of uh, Gynecologic Oncology and uh, Roshino O'Carroll, who is with uh, Medical Oncology, also at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And uh, the topic of this uh, discussion is their very important article that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, titled Secondary Cytoreduction in Carboplatin Hyperthermic Intraperitoneal Chemotherapy for Platinum-Sensitive Recurrent Ovarian Cancer, an MSK Team Ovary Phase Two study. So uh, first of all, thank you both Ali and uh, Roshin uh, for doing this podcast, and uh, I appreciate uh, Ali is actually on vacation in his vacation home, so it's the, it's the month of uh, July, so we certainly appreciate uh, his time as well as obviously Roshin. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks. So um, I wanted to obviously th this is uh, the topic of HIPEC is uh, is always uh, a, a very um, debated topic and, uh, and, and an important topic in uh, in gynecologic cancers today. Um, so I wanted to start with Ali uh, first, and um, we certainly have uh, no uh, prospective data in adequately powered studies evaluating HIPEC in the upfront setting. Um, we know there's data for benefit of HIPEC and in the interval setting, although certainly that study had a number of potential criticisms. But now uh, your team, your group targeted um, a, uh, a very important question, the role of HIPEC in the recurrent setting. So I was wondering if you can start by telling us how you came to the point of uh, developing this study. Why did you think this was an important question? Okay, first of all, um, Pedro, thank you so much for, for inviting us uh, again to, to your uh, podcast series. I can't stress enough how, um, how great these podcasts are. I'm really um, following them, and I, I hope we, we can contribute. And then also I want to uh, thank my partner, uh, Dr. Roshino Kell, who really was instrumental in um, you know, doing the, uh, this um, randomized phase study that we finally published after many years to be part of this uh, conversation. So at the time uh, when we um, looked at the role of HIPEC um, in, in the world of GYN oncology, we, we really didn't know which drugs to use. Uh, we were not clear about toxicity and uh, there was a really a lack of evidence for effectiveness in all settings. We didn't know <clears throat> which disease settings, costs and um, <clears throat> So at the time when we did the concept for our study, we uh, thought that uh, it would be a, a good idea to um, explore the role of giving chemotherapy intraoperatively in our patients with uh, platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer as we are following a very strict um, um, eligibility uh, criteria for taking patients back to the OR for recurrent disease. <clears throat> we thought that it, it would be a good um, start uh, to look at the role of HIPEC uh, at the time of secondary cytoreductive surgery. Um, as you know, um, during the surgery, there's no uh, post, there's no barriers of adhesions. It's a highly standardized procedure under anesthesia, and, and we wanted to see if uh, this one dose of intraperitoneal uh, treatment is going to help or not. That's why we um, 
uh, uh, chose the, this disease setting at the time when we um, did the concept for our, our trial. Yeah. And, and um, throughout the course of the podcast, I'm going to be asking some questions that were directly sent in from our uh, fellows in the International Journal. Um, so this one comes from Cecilia Darín from Argentina. And she asks, uh, some would argue that the uh, only published data to evaluate overall survival and recurrent ovarian cancer, GOG213, has not shown a difference between surgery versus chemotherapy. So should we be exploring surgery in the recurrent setting? Yes, thank you. That's a, it's a, it's a very uh, valid and good question. But you have to remember this is in the context, uh, context of time. GOG 2013 was published, uh, I think, in 2012, uh, uh, 2019, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. And when we uh, did our concept, uh, GOG 2013 was uh, still underway, so we really um, didn't have the results of 213. Uh, that's the first um, reason why uh, we, we're looking at this. Secondly, um, you know, GOG 213 is certainly a, a great study um, showing an unbelievable uh, good overall survival for uh, patients um, with chemotherapy alone of 65 months. Um, but um, there are other studies um, in the same setting, such as Desktop or SOC1 uh, from China, who actually have shown that in a select, selected group of patients for, for, for pr the procedure, there is actually a benefit for surgery. So there is a little bit of controversy there. And um, all those um, randomized trials are really important and are, um, are giving us um, good information and good uh, um, good um, food for thought when, when we um, talk to our, our patients. So, yes, um, GOG 213 uh, shows a great um, overall survival, but please remember um, there are su subtle differences, and we'll hear about this um, a little bit later. GOG 213 did not select for patients for surgery. There were, were no selection criteria. Also in, in GOG 213, um, all patients or um, over 80% of patients uh, received bevacizumab as part of their um, post-operative treatment in our study. Uh, this was not permitted. Uh, second of all, in GOG-213, the role of PARP inhibitors was not reported. And also, I think a very important um, point for, uh, in GOG-213 is that um, we really don't know how many patients who were randomized to chemotherapy alone did have some subsequent surgery in the later lines of treatment. So, um, you know, I think this is a very valid question, but I, I still feel that um, we, we have to take all those big trials together and, uh, and look at the nuances and differences uh, when, we, when, we make, um, when, we, when we talk to our patients. So it's a valid question, but at the time when we um, designed our study, uh, we did not have the results of GOG-213. And, and um, again, taking them together with the other studies, I think our, our study makes sense and, and um, adds some valid information to the literature. Very well, fair enough. And uh, so then now let's get into the details of this particular study, your study. Um, and I'll turn to Roisin for that. Um, Roisin, can you tell us about the primary aim of the study? So um, as Ali said, we really wanted to evaluate the role of HIPEC at the time of secondary cytoreduction reduction for patients with platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer. 
And as Ali said, at the time of this uh, study's inception, there was a lot of interest about incorporating um, heated chemotherapy at the time of cytoreduction. reduction, but this was all being done without prospective data. Mm-hmm. So the reason that we conducted the study was to get prospective data. And we had an open label multi-center investigator initiated uh, study to really try and, uh, and address this question and see if there was indeed a role for HIPAC at the time of secondary cytoreduction. reduction. Very well. And Rashid, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the details of the study design? Um, and specifically, if you can discuss like the, the two study arms for our audience. Sure. Yeah. Well, it was a phase two, um, and we were trying to look at the uh, proportion of patients who were without progression of disease at the 24-month mark following surgery. So the two arms were, one was with HIPEC with carboplatin, and um, that was carboplatin was dosed at 800 milligrams per meter squared and heated to 41 to 43 degrees Celsius over 90 minutes and circulated with normal saline. And that arm, so that was cycle one was given as HIPEC and then it was followed by five cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy. And as Ali said, there was no um, maintenance therapy administered. And then the other arm was a standard arm was without HIPEC, so same side reductive surgery. And then those patients received six cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy. So it was a pick-the-winner design, and we stratified patients by platinum-free interval, those who had progressed in between 6 and 12 months mm-hmm. and following their upfront platinum-based therapy, and those with um, who had uh, platinum-free intervals of 12 to 30 months. And we also looked at the number of disease, so we stratified by a single site versus multi-site. Yeah. No, I think that stratification was a, a great idea in the in the design. And what about the the secondary endpoints, uh, Ali? Yeah, so the secondary endpoints were, uh, which was very important at the time, thirty uh, uh, day post operative morbidity and mortality, ability to complete the assigned post operative chemotherapy cycles, because <clears throat> one um, you know concern was that their patients going to be too sick to complete. Uh, post-operative chemotherapy, and um, we looked at pharmacokinetics as well as overall survival uh, as well as part of our secondary endpoints. Yeah, and um, I I was wondering, obviously, whenever we talk about uh, prospective studies, there's always, no matter matter what study, there's always some potential criticism of who is allowed to um, be enrolled in the study. So, Roshin, can you tell us uh, as to who were the um, patients who were eligible for this particular study? Absolutely. So it was for patients who'd had their first recurrence of ovarian cancer, and it needed to be confirmed by imaging. So we looked at the patient population who had a recurrence uh, between six and 30 months after completion of their uh, first-line platinum therapy. And we chose that cutoff of 30 months intentionally, as we fortunately have a subset of patients who have exceptionally long first remissions. So we wanted to make sure that these outliers didn't skew uh, the results and similarly, we excluded, of course, patients with low-grade serous or borderline tumors. And patients couldn't have received prior chemotherapy for in the recurrent setting. They needed to have a, a reasonable performance status of at least 70% and the usual adequate renal, bone marrow, and hepatic function. They were excluded if they had significant uh, pre-existing neuropathy or, of course, if they were known to be allergic to platinum. And then patients, most importantly, had to be appropriate candidates for surgical cytoreduction. And um, as we'll discuss later, um, they really were only uh, randomized once resection was confirmed to that point, less than 0.5 centimeter residual disease. 
Perfect. Um, and Ali, I'll turn to you for this one. And, um, you know, certainly in this study, you, you included multiple centers, as would be expected. Uh, but some might argue that high-pec expertise might be variable from one center to the next. And certainly we know about the criticisms of, of surgical expertise between uh, different centers. So how, how did you assure that all centers were able to deliver sort of the same quality expertise in doing high-pec? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I think we discussed this in our um, uh, earlier podcast. In my opinion, personally, the, the high-pec procedure or uh, giving the chemotherapy intraoperatively, um, yes, you, you have to have some sort of uh, knowledge and expertise, uh, have used the you know, machines, the perfusion machines. But really what's uh, important here for safety is more uh, and efficacy is, is the surgical procedure itself. So, um, you know, we, we chose the centers um, uh, where we uh, thought that um, uh, secondary site reductive surgery is, is being done uh, with, with, with good quality. And um, all those centers had a prior experience with um, HIPEC, uh, either um, in outside of clinical trials or uh, if they had a um, high pack program for um, colorectal malignancies. Um, so all of those centers did have um, expertise in uh, giving chemotherapy intraoperatively. They had um, high pack programs uh, established, um, and this was our criterion for including those um, centers. Yeah. And staying a little bit on the methodology, I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you required that surgeons, as I recall, confirm resectability to less than 0.5 centimeters residual disease. Uh, first, the question is, you know, why did you set this mark? And the second is, you know, were you not worried about intra or intersurgeon variability when determining this uh, standard? And, uh, you know, certainly, as we know, in surgery, it's sort of like a rough estimate. A lot of times when you set it, anything other than R0. Yeah, very good question. And um, I honestly think uh, this is one weakness of our study. We certainly um, underestimated the um, intraoperative bias and we learned a lot through this. How did we come to 0.5 centimeters? For all the statistical design, we used our own institutional database um, uh, outcomes and um, again, you know, eligibility criteria. We excluded those with a very long platinum-free interval because um, they they had very good outcomes. So we wanted really to focus on the the intermediate to high-risk patients that we take to the OR and um, intraoperatively. Uh, in our institutional database, uh, we could see a cutoff in uh, progression and overall survival for patients who had minimal residual disease that we uh, defined as 0.5 centimeters or 5 millimeters versus um, more. And um, obviously, um, I think uh, when we talk about uh, certain things like bowel resections and intraoperative randomization later, um, we certainly underestimated the uh, uh, in, uh, intraoperative bias here. Um, and we should have, in retrospect, stratified by residual disease, uh, uh, CGR, uh, complete resection versus, um, uh, versus residual disease. That would have been a little bit um, more appropriate. Or we should have, like you said, just included patients 
with a complete resection. In that, in that case, there is no, um, uh, there is no um, problems with um, uh, surgical bias. But yeah. very valid question, and I think um, well taken, and we learned a lot from yeah. um, intraoperative randomization. Yeah, and we always learn, obviously, from these studies, and uh, we use that information often for future studies. So I'll, I'll turn over now to Roisin for a few more questions about the methodology. Uh, I noticed you did pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic uh, evaluations. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, well, what we did was we looked at the 15 consecutive patients that were randomized to the high-back arm, and we managed to get peripheral blood and peritoneal samples throughout the, the surgery. So we sent peritoneal and blood samples at various time points, uh, every kind of five minutes for the first um, 30 minutes. And then at the 45, 60, um, 75 and 90 minute mark. And then we same with the peritoneal samples. And then we also got uh, peripheral blood samples um, at 3, 6, 12, 18, up to 72 hours post um, the procedure as well. And then um, we, it was really Jan Vomer that was instrumental in helping us uh, do this, as well as um, Leah Marcusel at, at our own institute. And what we did was look at the ultra-filterable carboplatin. So the plasma had to be separated with an ultra-filtration uh, system. And then the platinum concentrations were... Uh, measured by spectrometry, and, and the bottom line is that we tried to compare the AUC between the um, or the equivalent AUC between the uh, peritoneal and the the peripheral samples. And we have another manuscript that we hope to publish shortly with Dr. Heigl, looking at the PK and PD changes that are associated with IPEC, including at the, the tissue level. Um, so, uh, as you say, it's important that we learn from from the study. So, hopefully, we're we're going to learn a lot more in the in the near future. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'll ask you a little bit about those results in a minute. Uh, and then just lastly, on the methodology, if you can just briefly tell us about the statistical design of the study. Yeah, so uh, we chose a little bit of a more unusual design. It was a pick-the-winner design, mm -hmm. and that was based on what we felt was going to be feasible. And the idea was that we would see which arm. The arms weren't compared directly, but we, we would be able to, at the end of the um at the study to see if if the each arm, the standard or the high arm, met, met their predetermined endpoint. So each of the arms was uh, powered to show an improvement over what we thought was our historical control estimate of a uh, twenty about a 25% 24-month progression free rate. So our null hypothesis was that 25%, but the alternative hypothesis was 40%. And we incorporated a, a type 1 error of 10% and a type 2 error of 20%. So that gave us a targeted accrual of 49 patients for each arm. And we determined before the study started that if we had at least 17 patients out of those projected 49 patients who were prog uh, progressing free at 24 months, mm -hmm. that arm would be considered to have met its endpoint. And of course, given the nature of the study, we had early stopping rules for um safety in the, the high back arm and we looked um at the 10 patient mark and then again after 20 patients just to make sure that we you know didn't have any unforeseen um post-operative or intraoperative complications um and um yeah i i think it was you know it, it took us quite a long time to accrue to this study um uh, given the, the nature of it so 
this, you know, we felt was the only feasible way to, to conduct this kind of study prospectively. So in the end, the pick the winner design, I think, was, was the best option for us. Yeah, and I'm glad, uh, again, I mean, pointing out the fact that uh, prospective randomized studies do take a long time. And congratulations again to both of you for, for not only starting the study, but uh, also completing it. So then now I want to get to the uh, to the, the main results. What did you find? You certainly, you accrued, I believe it was 117 patients, 99 patients ultimately randomized. So what were your results? Uh, that's for Rosine or for me? That's for Rosine, right? <laughs> Whichever, <laughs> whoever, whoever wants to answer. <laughs> So um, I'm I'm happy. So you know, one um, obviously the the primary endpoint. Um, Roshin, correct me if I'm wrong. Was um, you know we, we wanted to see um, pick the winner. The winner was the one uh, who had uh, the least uh, recurrence within 24 months, and I think the cutoff here was 17 out yeah. of 49. Yeah, and and no. Um, no study arm uh, reached that um, uh, level of a winner, so we do not have a winner um, in, in this study. Both study arms are um, have lost uh, or have not met our uh, winner criterion. Um, and when we look at um, progression-free and overall survival, um, uh, you can see that in patients who are randomized to HIPEC, followed by five cycles, the progression-free survival was uh, 12.3 months compared with um, 15.7 months for patients uh, who were assigned to standard uh, treatment. And then um, patients randomly assigned um, to HIPEC had a median overall survival of 53 months compared to 60 months for patients randomly assigned to the standard arm. Uh, so overall, uh, there was no statistical significant difference in, in overall survival. Uh, these think, are the main, uh, yeah. And I think the important thing to emphasize is here is that none of the patients or, or patients weren't, didn't receive um, maintenance therapy because that wasn't a standard of care at the time mm. that we designed this. Yeah, no, that's a very important point, And thank you actually for pointing that out. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly, obviously, that this is a... Uh, uh, an important finding, uh, and you know, I, I, it, this is a, a question that that's always been, um, um, uh, you know, addressed in in in, in, uh, in in many conferences. But finally, a study that um, tells us what the what the findings are. Um, but now, Ali, I wanted to get to the point of you know some of the specifics on the findings. You know, you had a, a median operative time of eight hours uh, in the HIPEC group uh, with at least one case in the OR for 13 and a half hours, I believe. Um, you know, certainly some, some would say, wouldn't it be easier and safer to just give chemotherapy? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, it's easier um, to... Uh, just give chemotherapy but that you know that's always the question that we have with our patients uh, is uh, is easier always the best so yeah if you commit to surgery sometimes you're in in for for longer procedures such as in um, in, in this study and we have prospectively uh, looked at this so um, I, I think um, yes we have a very uh, much uh, significantly longer OR time for patients who were randomized to HIPEC. But please remember, this was an experimental setting. So 
and neither the um, the OR nurses nor the uh, surgeons nor the patient knew um, is there going to be a high-tech procedure done or not. We only randomized after we were certain that we can mm -hmm. um, uh, cite to reduce to less than 0 0.5 centimeters, uh, and then the machine was set up and the chemotherapy was um, uh, brought to the uh, OR room from pharmacy. So, you know, in an experimental setting, the three uh, three hours makes sense. In a non-experimental setting where you don't have the intra-op randomization process, um, you'll cut this down um, significantly. But uh, certainly, yes, um, the hyper procedure adds at least um, two hours to uh, your standard uh, surgical procedure. And that has to be discussed with the uh, the patients, the nurses, the anesthesiologists, and everyone else. Yeah, no. And uh, in all fairness, again, to 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 the fact that um, in a, in a, in the setting of of this trial, uh, as you mentioned, with the randomization and the setting up and the logistics, it, it adds time. So thank you for clarifying that. And then, Roshin, I, I wanted to get back to the point of the pharmacokinetic studies. Uh, what was the main mm -hmm. take home message? Well. Um I mean, one thing that we, as expected, we saw was that the, you know, the local delivery of chemotherapy, so the levels in the peritoneum were much higher than in the periphery. Mm -hmm. So uh, locally, we got, we kind of projected that we had an exposure of at least 5.5, whereas peripherally at the peak, it was 3.3 AUC. Um, and then, as expected, the plasma pattern increased during the perfusion uh, procedure and did appear to reach a steady state towards the end of the perfusion. Um, so this is something that we're really looking into. Uh, obviously, we use carboplatin. I don't know that we really discussed that too much uh, already mm -hmm. versus the dendrial, um interval debulking at the time of uh, upfront therapy. They used um, cisplatin. Mm -hmm. So we had chosen carboplatin because we thought that it would be less, uh, less toxic um, and definitely with less concern for nephrotoxicity um, but you know it is a larger molecule and based on our study you know if further studies are be done I, I think definitely we'll have to consider the choice of, of agents uh, going forwards. Yeah and then just having learned from this would you in future studies consider cisplatinum instead of carboplatin? Yeah I, I think we, we, we would or we're also trying to look at other targeted agents as well I mean there's interesting data regarding you know, heat shock proteins and, and, and um, you know, there, that might be a pathway as well, how, how we can look at, use the PK data um, that we have and, and um, maybe consider other rational combinations as well. Yeah. So we'll be looking forward to that subsequent uh, manuscript you're preparing as well. Now, Ali, uh, one, one of the main concerns regarding HIPEC is obviously morbidity. Um, and you didn't find a difference between the groups. So why, why do you think that was the case? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the PK data that uh, Roshin just uh, explained, uh, again, um, we, we were concerned about systemic toxicity from, from the carboplatin, and um, this, uh, the PK data shows that um, really small amounts of carboplatin actually uh, enter mm -hmm. the systemic compartment. So uh, it makes sense that we have not seen much, you know, um, hematologic toxicity. Uh, we have not seen any renal toxicity. We have not seen any um, neurotoxicity. And I think that's <clears throat> a result of very um, 
um, favorable pharmacokinetics when you give the treatment intraperitoneally. Um, and pretty much all the complications that we've seen are a result of uh, the surgery. And uh, since this was a randomized study, um, we couldn't see a, a difference. Bo both both arms had post-operative complications, some infections, but it was, um, you know, um, really a, a, on an acceptable range. There was no mortality, mm -hmm. so zero patients died, uh, which was very in, um, uh, important. And um, we also, uh, for that matter, did not see any anastomotic leaks in all our patients who had bowel resection. And I think uh, about 50% of patients uh, enrolled in our study <clears throat> had at least one bowel resection. We had zero anastomotic leaks. So, yeah, I think the pharmacokinetics speak for itself. We didn't see any hematologic toxicity. The toxicity that we've seen and recorded was uh, mainly um, mainly uh, post-operative complications. There was one patient in a HIPEC arm who had um, a hematologic toxicity with a low platelet count of a grade three, and that possibly is uh, due to carboplatin. But, um, uh, you know, this patient recovered really quickly post-operative. Yeah. And this next question is from Arthur Shu, one of our other um, fellows from Taiwan. And uh, you may not have this information, but he wanted to know if you were aware if the centers, particularly as you were talking just recently about postoperative or perioperative complications, if they had integrated enhanced recovery protocols. Yeah, very good question. At the time when uh, we uh, designed the study, um, you know, ERAS, ERAS protocols were on the rise, but not... Um, you know, not uh, there was no ERES program in place. So when we designed our study, we did not specify for ERES protocols. But as the study moved on, I um, I think all of the centers have implemented um, either full or parts of the ERES program. Um, so ERES played played a role, but it was not um, a, a stand, it was not a required requirement of the uh, protocol. Yeah. And this next question is for Roshins. This one's from Natalia Rodriguez from uh, Spain. Um, and she asks, were there factors that could suggest a benefit in, uh, to HIPEC in patients with a long platinum-free interval or does the BRCA status play a role? I, I think that's a great question. And um, I love the fact that the international fellows are, are so engaged. I think this is a, a really super... Um, <laughs> opportunity and platform for them to, to ask these great questions. So um, uh, thinking back to 2010, when we designed um, the study, we, we didn't really have the option of uh, PARP inhibitors. And, and unfortunately, uh, germline testing wasn't even standard uniformly. Um, although obviously nowadays we all ensure that our, our, any of our patients with um, ovarian cancer have appropriate access to genetic testing. Um, so if I was to redesign the study nowadays, I would definitely include BRCA status. I think it's very important. And the other factor that we probably would have considered would have been stratification by the complete gross resection status. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a, a randomized study, but it did so happen that 82% of the patients in the HIPEC arm underwent a complete gross resection compared to 94% in the, the standard arm. So as time moves on, you know, we kind of uh, have to rethink um, 
what are we looking and what differences should we be looking at and you know the great effect that we have access now to PARP inhibitor maintenance therapies and anti-angiogenics you know thankfully nowadays we have a lot more options for, for our patients. Yeah, completely agree. Great points. Uh, Ollie, this next question is from Emma Allison from Australia. Um, did you collect quality of life data or do you have a sense from the literature as to whether there is a difference between HIPEC and just standard uh, chemotherapy uh, groups as it pertains to quality of life? Yeah, so as part of our study, we did not prospectively collect quality of life data. And um, <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> I'm not aware of um, a lot of good st studies, um, prospective studies collecting quality of life. My gut feeling is that probably there's uh, not going to be um, a difference uh, because I think the quality of life with or without HIPEC depends on the perioperative outcomes and complications. And if there's not much um, difference there, I, I don't anticipate um, that there's going to be much quality of life difference. But um, I know for, uh, that uh, uh, the second uh, randomized trial in the upfront setting from the Dutch group is going to look at quality of life. Uh, so we're going to have some data on that. Great. And this is uh, another question that was submitted in uh, States. In your discussion, uh, you, you actually quote, our trial design does not permit direct arm-to-arm -arm comparison. What did you mean by that? Um, so as Roisin uh, pointed out, this was a pick the winner design and um, each arm uh, was actually uh, compared to a historical arm that, um, that we used as, as our um, uh, control arm. So a direct arm to arm comparison, although it, it was um, uh, shown in our manuscript, was not our primary endpoint and is uh, certainly should not be used to um, uh, make a judgment because the, the study was not powered uh, to co compare progression-free survival um, arm to arm. Uh, each arm was compared to a historical arm. So that's why um, we, we uh, clearly cited that um, all the arm-to-arm -arm comparisons are exploratory in nature and uh, it was not powered to do um, uh, direct arm-to-arm -arm comparison. And Ali, another um, point that was brought up uh, was the issue about how you speak of bowel resection rates could have had an impact on outcomes. Can you elaborate a little bit more as to what you meant by that? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <clears throat> sorry. So, um, again, uh, looking at... <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. Looking at GOG 213, uh, desktop, and SOC1, all uh, uh, those trials included patients who had bowel resections. And our, in our uh, HIPEC study, 50% of patients who went to the OR had a bowel resection. This compares much higher than uh, in GOG 213, where only 28% of patients uh, had a bowel resection, or desktop, where 36% of patients had a uh, bowel resection. Uh, so um, I think it speaks uh, uh, for, 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 for the fact that we really included a more high-risk group of patients. Now, intraoperative randomization, we've learned our lesson. Um, we randomized intraoperatively when we thought patients are resectable to less than 0 0.5 uh, centimeters. So what happened here is uh, possible 
uh, intraoperative surgical bias uh, is that some patients had maybe some miliary disease on the bowel and uh, mm. uh, when when they were randomized to HIPEC, uh, it's possible that some surgeons uh, chose not to perform a bowel resection out of concerns for more morbidity mm. um, when, when they could have. And I think th- uh, that's a possible explanation for why we have a difference in bowel resection between arms and patients who underwent, um, uh, who were randomized to HIPEC, um, only, I think, 30% um, had a, a bowel uh, resection versus 60% in, in patients who uh, were not randomized to HIPEC. Um, if I'm, yeah, 37 versus 65%. I'm just looking it up. So mm-hmm. I think that's a um, result of the intraoperative uh, uh, bias. Mm-hmm. So then now, Roisin, I wanted to ask you, this, this question came from Emma Allison again, uh, um, and she asked, with regards to where we are today with the use of PARP inhibitors, um, where do you see the role of HIPEC in recurrent disease? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we even debate the role of secondary cytoreduction, right. um, but we're definitely in, in favor of se- secondary cytoreduction in, you know, select patients. Uh, you know, at our institute, we have pre-specified criteria, but I, I think at any institute, I think it's important that if this is being considered that it's, you know, a large volume center that, you know, has the, the required expertise. But but in regards to the HIPEC question, we, we don't use HIPEC outside the setting of a clinical trial in this mm-hmm. setting, and we just don't feel that there's sufficient data for that. And you know, we do have a lot of other uh, treatment options. Um, so I think we are very excited to study this more, but we wouldn't um, con- give HIPEC outside the setting of, of a clinical trial in this uh, recurrent setting. Yeah, and I'm really glad you uh, highlighted that because obviously it is important to highlight that outside of a clinical trial, um, perhaps we don't have uh, the data yet to uh, proceed with that management. Um, so, Ali, uh, this question comes from Sarah Nasser. Uh, she's in Germany. And uh, the question is, why do you consider that HIPEC continues to expand in gynecologic oncology today, despite the absence of robust evidence in primary or recurrent disease? <laughs> and we'll, we'll get to the end of the podcast. <laughs> I think your, your, your dog is ready for a walk. Yeah. Well, my dog is uh, mad. Uh, that I have to answer this question. It's a, it's a very good question. It, com- it, it comes from Germany, where I think HIPEC is even much more under, you know, um, scrutiny than than it is in other parts of the world. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, of course, we we have um, we have uh, you know controversial data on that, and I, I think our study is a negative study uh, did not show an, a benefit, so it's, it confirms what uh, uh, what people think who are not in favor of it. But, um, you know, we do have some robust data. Uh, we have a randomized trial in the interval debugging setting. We have some good um, cost-effective analysis. Now we have a negative trial. So I think over the next years, we're going to get uh, a better insight and we'll be better able to say in which setting it works or it doesn't work and will be have a, a, a better way to cons- consult with our patients so i think um the um the question is a very good question and uh, well taken 
but I think we're in the process of gathering data and we can't make um, too many harsh, uh, either way, um, judgments. And we have to wait with everything in, in, in our field. We have to wait un until we have more prospective data and, and, and this is coming. So I think the next four or five years are gonna give us a, um, a better um, sense of how we can incorporate HIPEC and where in our patients. Great. So then uh, I, uh, this is the last question for Roisin, and this question comes from Arthur Shu again. Um, do you think the failure to detect a difference between the, the two groups in your study was due to the regimen that was used? And I think we alluded to yeah. this a little bit before. Mm -hmm. And he's, he asked, obviously it's a speculation, but he asked, do you think that if you would have used a different regimen, you mm -hmm. really would have seen a difference in benefit of HIPEC? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. As you know, um, uh, just as a, a very quick reminder, you know, all comparisons between the arms had to be exploratory just to the nature of the design. Uh, they weren't, you know, we did do exploratory analysis, but we, the study wasn't powered to do a direct uh, comparison. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, it, it may have been due to the fact that we used carboplatin as the agent. You know, there was good rationale when we designed the study for incorporating carboplatin in order to try and reduce the risk of toxicity. At the time, there had been some toxicity seen associated with cisplatin. And now, subsequently, they've great um, renal protective programs available for patients who are undergoing uh, cisplatin HIPEC at the time of interval debulking surgery. And, and it seems that you can really reduce the risk of nephrotoxicity substantially using those but if we were, yeah, absolutely, we would consider using a different regimen. And the other thing is, you know, we tried to balance the arms. And so it was six cycles in each arm. But, you know, the standard arm did get six cycles mm -hmm. of chemo um, after the HIPEC. Um, and we counted number one for the HIPEC arm. So um, it's, it's hard to say, um, you know, as we also alluded to, we intentionally excluded maintenance therapy, too. Mm -hmm. um, so that it wouldn't affect our progression-free survival. Obviously, patients were very ca carefully counseled about that before going on the study. Um, at the initial inception, it wasn't an issue because there was no FDA approved. Um, and then we subsequently, you know, made sure that patients had elected that they, they did not want to do subsequent maintenance therapy. And of course, the other thing is, you know, we didn't include those patients with very long progression-free survival, which is a little bit different from from prolonged uh, platinum-free intervals, um, which is a little bit different, say, from the GOG-213. Fantastic. And one last question. Obviously, you're both at a leading institution, uh, so everyone always wants to know what you're doing there. Um, and this last question is for Ali, uh, and Roisin alluded to a little bit before. Outside of clinical trials at Memorial Sloan Kettering, are you doing HIPEC for recurrent ovarian cancer? No, we're not. Um, we're not doing it outside of clinical trials, and I don't think um, we should do it. I think uh, we have to wait for uh, prospective data. So our um, our study, uh, because it was negative, does not really um, give us a good signal to invest another additional two hours and and give uh, the treatment. I think we have to. Uh, we have a. Um, uh, we have to find out if other regimens, like Rosin said, are going to be efficient in that setting, and then we should use it. I, I, I don't think um, we have good evidence to 
recommend HIPEC in the recurrent uh, uh, setting in, in, at the time of surgery. And we, we at our institution are not doing it outside of clinical trials. Great. So, Roisin, uh, Ali, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, this has been really uh, a, a pleasure to speak to both of you, to learn about your study. Congratulations on completing the study. Thank you. And uh, congratulations to, to you both again for what you're contributing to gynecologic oncology. And, Ali, thank you again for taking time out of your vacation to doing this, uh, this podcast. Thank you both so much. Thank, thank you, you, Pedro. Thank you.